<laughs> awesome. Well, good morning. So I love that video. We did that several years ago. Brian Rossi, still one of my favorites. And uh, it's amazing, isn't it, to see how people, they, they go through traditions. They don't necessarily know what's going on. You know, they get handed a palm. Yeah, of course, we're going to get handed a palm. Uh, why? I don't have no idea, but look at this. Isn't it cool, you know? And by the way, you'll get handed a palm on the way out. Just out of curiosity, uh, how many of you grew up with the tradition of you were handed palms on Sunday? Raise your hand. Look at that. That's almost everybody. Wow, that's amazing. And, and I, listen, I never knew why as a kid. I grew up in a Catholic church. I never knew why I was handed a palm. I just knew that it was a great way to bother my brother and my mother and to tickle them and just kind of mess around in church. And that's really all I knew about church. Uh, but I want you to know that Palm Sunday does have significance. And it's because uh, we call it Palm Sunday because the story that we're about to read is when Jesus came over the Mount of Olives riding into Jerusalem on to, to celebrate the Passover feast. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, the crowd gathered around, considered him a king of the Jews, and that meant something different for everybody. But they grabbed palm branches and laid them on the ground, almost like a red carpet. They waved them and they were using them to celebrate his, you know, his coming into Jerusalem. Uh, and, and by the way, it's, a, uh, it's interesting how uh, you, know, you get these and a lot of people say, well, why'd you, why'd you even pass these out? Well, if you go online and you Google this or YouTube search this, you can find out how to make this into this, which is kind of cool because you could, uh, it's you know, a couple easy folds and then you can kind of wrap it up and tear some string off and tie that up and maybe hang it on your wall or keep it as a memento or even a reminder through the Easter season, which is very, very cool. Hey, I want to let you know that um, I actually went to Israel back in 2009, and uh, they actually walked us down the triumphal entry road in, you know, over the Mount of Olives where Jesus was believed to have walked. And this is the road right here. And uh, there are not too many different roads that it could have possibly been. This was certainly the most prominent, and, and, and actually the only one that went straight to the Eastern Gate, which, by the way, is known as the Golden Gate, or actually the Gate of Mercy, where Jesus actually walked through the, the, the Eastern Gate. This is the road that faces that. Now, uh, over here, there's a picture of a church that they built where the, where the road turns, and they, they built a church here to commemorate the idea that Jesus could have possibly stood in that spot when he was on his journey coming, you know, he was always back and forth on the Mount of Olives, and he looked over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I weep for you. I've longed to gather you, just like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and there's like a you know, great kind of thing about that. In fact, if you look at Jerusalem from that church, that's the picture I took. So it, it is a, definitely a, sp excuse me, a spot where the road turns. And it's a natural lookout overlooking Jerusalem. So uh, listen, the reason why we're celebrating Palm Sunday and diving into it is because you've arrived uh, really for the first part of an Easter celebration, and it's called Possible. And we're asking the question today that's actually the same question that they asked on the original Palm Sunday over 2,000 years ago. As Jesus was riding over the Mount of Olives and they had heard so much about him, they were all asking, could this be him? Could this be Jesus, who he claims to be? Could it be him? And that's the question I believe that we're still asking today. So let's pray as we dive into this together. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for everyone in this room or listening online. And I pray, God, that you would help us to not only hear from you today, but give us the courage to know how to take the next step in our faith journey with you today. 
Lord, we know that your word is relevant and it's practical and it's meaningful and useful for our lives today. So I pray, Lord, that we may set the stage for this upcoming Easter holiday, but at the same time, uh, understand just what it is that you have for us in these moments. We ask and pray for, uh, for all of us, uh, either here in this room again or on the other end of the screen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this time, we're going to take just a moment and receive our offering. And as the ushers are coming down, I just want to say, if you're visiting here today, you don't have to worry about giving in this moment. If you're a part of Kensington, if you consider this your place of worship, we, we really do encourage you to give because it is actually a part of our faith. It's a very big part. We're supposed to give back to what God has blessed us with. And so we're always careful to say thank you for giving. Thank you for trusting us and our leadership. More importantly, thank you for trusting what the Bible says about giving. If you didn't come prepared to give in person in the pouches, you could do it right from your phone, just like every great organization prepares for giving like this. Uh, we do so as well because I pay all my bills electronically, so you can give by texting right now or through the app or through the website. And if you're listening online, there's some buttons on there as well. So thank you for doing that. And so as the offering is passing, I just want to start off by telling you that I started going to church uh, when I was in high school. And it actually doesn't sound like, it sounds like I was really young when I started going to high school, but I had lived a pretty long life up to that point. It was a long, you know, high school, up to high school kind of a life. And so when I first started going, my parents very much welcomed the idea of me going to church. So like, for instance, I have four older brothers, okay, all Hellions, part of gangs, you know, we owned a bar, you know, our, our, our lifestyle wasn't exactly, you know, leave it to Beaver, but um, when it, or, you know, whatever modern show that I could possibly mention. But um, when it comes down to it, when we started going to church, Jimmy and I, who was the one closest to me, my parents said, thank God. Thank the Lord that these two kids are going to church. They need it. So that was a very much a welcomed idea. But then uh, I remember about a year later, uh, I kid you not, this actually happened. My parents sat me down for coffee, and they had a meeting with me. And, and the conclusion of that meeting was, listen, we love the fact that you're going to church, but the question is, aren't you taking it a bit too far? Like, aren't you, isn't, isn't enough enough? Like, like, that's a lot of church. That's a lot of service. That's a lot of priority in your life. And they literally sat me down and they said that to me. I'm thinking to myself, what parent says that? You know, stop being so good. You know, so, so uh, but you know, they were concerned because the truth came out about a year later because all the comments that I would receive going through high school was something like this. Uh, you're just brainwashed. That church is brainwashing you. That's what they would say. And not just them, but also my brothers. And that's fine because they had no idea. And so, and, and they would say that all the time. You know, uh, you're just being brainwashed and you know, that church, or they would call, I don't know if they called it a cult or not, probably. But they certainly didn't like the fact that I was just so radically involved. Uh, and then I think something changed my senior year of high school. Um, and, and they actually can point back to this. And so my family has told me this. It was the time when my car got smashed. So here's what happened. I went off to summer camp, a church camp. So I was gone for like, you know, seven days. And, and it was a great time with all of our high school students. And, you know, if you've ever been to like a church camp, you come back like loving Jesus more than ever. And it's real exciting. And it's, you know, spiritual. And you come back really. Well, I pulled back literally from, you know, my trip. And I looked on the side of the road, which is where I parked my car. And my car was totaled. It looked like it had been broadsided from the side. It was. And it was a 19... 78 Malibu Classic, Chevelle Malibu Classic. 
and it was completely smashed. And so and I had come, you know, walk, and by the way, it's not as nice as it sounds, okay? It was, it was a rust bucket, but, but it was mine. And I remember coming in and the whole thing was smashed. I walked in through the front doors and my family was just kind of, they knew I was going to see that first. And they said, Chris, we got some bad news. And here's what happened. My neighbor's uh, driveway was actually kind of perpendicular to where I parked my car. And it was very much of a very steep hill. And he owned a tow truck and he had parked his tow truck, forgot to put the parking brake on, left it in neutral, went in the house and a tow truck, you know, kind of backed up. And you can imagine the weight of this thing. It comes straight across the road, smashes and totals my car completely. So they tell me that information and literally I just laughed. I was like, that is hilarious. And I just started laughing. And they said, well, that's not the reaction we expected. And I said, I said, well, it's only, it's only a car. I mean, it's only material, you know. And I'm, here I am, like 18, about to go to college, need a car. And I remember them saying, like, wow, that was the moment where we looked at each other saying, something's different about that dude, right? Because who says that, right? And so they look back and say, wow, maybe, maybe something really has truly changed in him. Uh, and that's when they started to kind of, you know, you know, take me seriously when it comes to my faith. And I'll never forget that. And by the way, what happened was I went to my neighbor. He was totally scared to death. None of us had insurance because remember in the 80s was when it wasn't required by law. Anybody with me on that? We, <clears throat> we were on the poor side of town. We're like, insurance? <laughs> so I like, I knocked on his door. He didn't have it either. And he was totally scared to death. And I just said, hey, man, no worries. And he's like, Really? I'm like, yeah. I said, listen, I have an old car that's been broken down in my garage, and it was a night. It was a beautiful black with red uh, trim, a 1977 Vet. Okay, it was a Chevette, <laughs> and it was true. It was a Chevette. <laughs> Remember those? And, and I actually, but it was still mine, and I went to him, and I just said, listen, it needs a transmission. If you could do some surgery on the Chevette, we'll be good, and he did, and, and he fixed it, and that was it. And so I remember, you know, that story because my family referred back to that, saying that was the time when we started to maybe think a little differently. Now, isn't it true, this is so true, uh, that there always have been and there always will be, be, be people, let me say that again, easy for me to say. There always have been and always will be people who are skeptical. Skeptical. <laughs> this is not the one that's going online. We're not going to post this in the video archive. What is the matter with me? Good morning, everybody. There always have been and always will be people who have been and will be skeptical of who Jesus is. Thank you. Thank you for letting me get that out. That's hilarious. <laughs> wow, that's really funny. Uh, so, um, listen, when it comes down to it, uh, the people before the crucifixion and resurrection, they had the same sort of questions. There were mixed reviews about Jesus even back then. They were skeptical, skeptical about, about uh, the miracles that he claimed to have you know, done or people claimed that he did. They were skeptical about uh, the disciples, his closest followers, about what they claimed to have seen. They were skeptical about Jesus' claims of who he was, right? And so if you fast forward today, it's pretty much the same thing, isn't it? People are skeptical about Jesus, who he claimed to be. They're still skeptical about Jesus' closest current followers and what they claim to have witnessed. And they're still skeptical about the miracles that he continues to do in our lives. And I honestly believe that, you know, that uh, even back then, even though that things have changed, things have stayed the same. Now, Easter, over 2,000 years later, we realize we're the same sort of people. 
Now, what's really interesting as well is that when you think about Jesus, he's probably the most polarizing figure in all of history. I mean, think about it. He's, he's, he's incredibly unnerving to some people. If you don't believe me, try this at your next dinner party. Bunch of, uh, invite a bunch of guests that you don't know from your neighborhood, have a dinner party, and then get up and say, listen, I want to make you guys feel as comfortable as possible, so tonight I'm going to talk to you all about Jesus. Just try that, and let's see how long that lasts, right? Because people from different religions view him differently as well. So there are certain religions, billions and billions of people over the years recognize Jesus as equal to God, the Son of God. They believe in his divinity. But there are also just as many people over the years, most likely, that view him as somebody of prominence, but not, not divine. In other words, like we, they equate him with Moses and the other prophets, and they put him on that level, but they don't uh, you know, recognize his divinity. But then there are also a lot of people who would say, I don't deny that he existed because that's proven in history, but I just consider him a great moral teacher. And some people might even not go as far as that, right? But, but, but some people would say he's just a great moral teacher. And none of those other things are true. Well, the problem with that is that it, based on Jesus' claims, you know, those are, those are things that are hard to believe because Jesus claimed to be equal with God. He actually said, no man gets to the Father except through me. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Jesus actually predicted that he was going to die and then be raised again on the third day. Jesus said that he was the promised Messiah. The over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed toward his coming, that he claimed to take away the sins of the world. And because of these claims... C.S. Lewis says there's no in-between when thinking about Jesus, right? Because either because he claimed these things, he's either a liar or he's Lord or he's a lunatic, right? Because when it comes down to it, Jesus can't just be considered a moral teacher because of the things that he said and because of the things that he claimed. So we're going to be looking at the passage in John 12, which is the triumphant, triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem that started the feast of the Passover. And I want to go ahead and tell you, give you a little context, okay? Uh, if you rewind just a couple chapters, uh, Jesus had just performed an incredible miracle. Some scholars say it was actually the day before, and, and, and most scholars would say it's no more than just a couple of days, or maybe a few days. But if you rewind back in time and you look back in like chapter 23 or something like that of Luke, it actually gives a full account detail of how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus had done a lot of cool miracles, you know, healing the you know, blind and the, the lame and the deaf and, and all these you know, different uh, you know, medical uh, miracles. And yet Jesus, his biggest feat was raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, he had done this privately with a little girl, but this was more of a public display with a prominent figure, with people standing around, and Jesus stands in front of a tomb, and Mary and Martha, they were there in Bethany, and they said, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's in the tomb, and he stinks, and we rolled the stone over, and Jesus called Lazarus forward. They rolled the stone away. Lazarus came up with his, with his burial clothes on, and Jesus said, loose him and you know, unbind him and let him come free. And the buzz got around. And then the Bible says the next day, uh, or actually they said, it just says he went to Bethany or he went to Bethsaida. And then it says the next day he rode in six days before the Passover. Now, uh, by the way, I, I might just tell you this right now. The Passover was the most celebrated feast in all of Jewish history and continues with the Jewish tradition today to be the most celebrated event in all the Old Testament. Because, I don't know, many of you probably know this, but when Moses kind of, you know, 
parted the Red Sea and he you know, delivered the children of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage from the Egyptians. And then, I don't know if you remember that old movie, a lot of you do, where the water comes down and kills all the you know, Pharaoh and the chariots and everything else. That was the physical salvation or the delivery of the children of Israel. So they celebrated that for years. And that's what Passover means. The word Passover means when God was sending the plagues like the locusts and the, and the fire and, and, you know, the red blood and all, everything else that kind of came with uh, those things. The last plague was the angel coming through and it was, it was causing the firstborns to die in the homes. And so the requirement was if you put blood over your doorpost, the blood of a lamb, a lamb that is spotless, a lamb that is pure, then the angel will pass over you. That's what that means. So that's what Passover means. So for years and years, they were celebrating this idea that the blood of the lamb, uh, you know, allows, allows God to pass over you for judgment. Well, many of you know this. It, it, it is not by accident that God sent Jesus into the Passover because symbolically we already know that he's referred to as the lamb of God without sin, without blemish, without spot, the perfect sacrifice to die on a cross to pay for your sins and mine so that the judgment of sin will pass over all of us. So it's pretty incredible. Now, here's how the scripture reads. Look at John chapter 12. It says, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. Now, I just want to go ahead and tell you that we're going to be looking back. A lot of times I'll highlight something to teach on it, but I want you to pay attention to it because these highlighted phrases are going to allow us to observe just who it was in the crowd there during the event of the triumphal entry, okay? So it says, a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. In other words, Jesus was fulfilling all sorts of prophecies throughout the course of his life, even riding into Jerusalem. It says, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. Then it says, that was the reason so many went out to meet him because they had heard about this miraculous sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks, non-Jewish folks, among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, this, this event is very important because if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which start the New Testament, I don't know if you know this or not, but those four books are four accounts, four separate accounts of Jesus' life, right? And so if you read them and you say, why is there so much repetition? Because some stories are shared in one gospel only, some in two, some in three, but the most prominent stories are shared in all four accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them recorded it. Well, the Passover, or the, excuse me, the triumphal entry was, was something that was recorded in all four books. And there's only a, you know, only a handful of those. In other words, it must have been incredibly significant. 
So imagine yourself 2,000 years ago. Imagine you live in first century Jerusalem and you're you know, part of the Jewish uh, people and that you go to Jerusalem every year from you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles in some cases uh, to gather to celebrate uh, God delivering your people and how faithful he was in your past. You are required to bring a lamb for sacrifice. And that's how back then they paid for their sin. They literally would grab a lamb and they would give it over to the priest and the priest would shed the blood and that's what the Bible says. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so imagine this. Josephus, a noted historian, a Jewish historian, has said that it is noted that there, uh, in, in one Passover early on, there were 256,500 lambs uh, killed at one Passover, each lamb representing over 10 worshipers, which means it is believed that this crowd was probably the size of about two and a half million people. Now, let me ask you this question. What if two and a half million people invaded Detroit? What if they said, hey, we're going to have the Olympics in Detroit? <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? That would never happen. But let's just say that they said, we're going to have the next Olympics in Detroit, right? Can you imagine how many years that our city would probably, you know, take to prepare to house and feed and provide restrooms and everything like this? Can you imagine the logistics of two million people coming into the city? Well, imagine how it was back then. Because, you know, Jerusalem is relatively small. It must have been crowded. It, it, would, it would probably be a scene that you're used to seeing on New Year's Eve at Times Square. Have you ever seen those interviews where they said, it, it's so crowded, I literally can't move. How are you going to the bathroom? I, brought, I bought a bag, you know. I mean, like, that's what they say because they literally can't move. It must have been that way. Well, with that comes the idea that like there were Roman soldiers there because this was obviously a time where the most Jewish people from hundreds of miles would have come to celebrate and a crowd that size could have easily overthrown Rome. Now, many of you already know this, but Rome was actually, uh, Israel was actually occupied by Rome. It was an occupied territory because Rome had conquered the world. And that's the reason why, by the way, we're about to learn on Good Friday why Jesus had to go to Pilate, which is a Roman governor, and he also had to go to Caiaphas, which was a Jewish ruler, because, again, Jesus had to go to both authorities because Rome had ruled over uh, Israel at the time, okay? So, in other words, the Roman soldiers were there, as the scripture said, because this was a time for Jewish zealots to try to revolt the people to overthrow their occupancy, in other words, when we observe who was there at that crowd, here's the first thing that we observe. First, the Roman soldiers were there because verse number 12 says, a large crowd of Passover visitors were there. And the Roman soldiers, as we read and as we know about them, they were charged with keeping the peace in all of Israel. They were charged with controlling the crowd. So can you imagine how they beefed up their security when that happened? Well, think about this. So here comes Jesus riding in on a colt or riding in on a donkey. And they call it the triumphal entry of the king of the Jews. Do you know why they called it a triumphal entry? Because that nickname came from the Romans. That event, that celebration came from the Romans. Because in Rome, they were used to a real triumphal entry when a general or a soldier would have conquered on a foreign soil over 5,000 soldiers and anything over that, they would throw like a ticker tape parade only with much more glory and splendor where the Roman governor or the general would come down the parade and he would be in, of course, a golden chariot with white stallions, you know, kind of symbolizing his, you know, being a great warrior. Oftentimes they would have their trophies and some of them were gory. If you read about 
about those. And then oftentimes their enemies would be in chains. And they would go down the street kind of proclaiming their majesty. And all of Rome would show up just cheering. And then what would happen is it would end at the Colosseum where a lot of the captives would actually fight wild beasts. And that would be their triumphal entry. And so can you imagine the Romans watching the king of the Jews? And I'm using that in quotes because they didn't know what that was. That's evidenced in the scripture. As he comes riding in on a lowly donkey. Can you imagine how they snickered and how they mocked and how they probably rolled their eyes and thought, what leader would ever lower himself? He doesn't even have a horse. He's got a donkey. Like it's the most common thing that you could possibly ride. And here he comes over the mountain. They're waving palm branches because everybody's poor. They have to grab some leaves off of a tree because here he is riding in and they're thinking to themselves, I've seen a real triumphal entry. And this is nothing even close. In fact, it categorizes as nothing, right? So the Roman soldiers were those who mock, those who mock. In other words, they laugh and scoff at the idea of who Jesus claims to be. Now, this actually comes from scripture because it's told to us that the Romans mocked Jesus more than any other crowd of people or any other category of people. The Romans were the ones who, you know, put a blanket on his head and struck him and laughed at him and, you know, made fun of him and put a crown of thorns on it and said, you're the king and king of the Jews and everything else that we're, again, going to kind of reserve for Good Friday. But when it comes down to it, we understand that the Roman soldiers are there and that their history is to mock. And by the way, it's because they have never seen or met Jesus. The idea that, like, they were there back then kind of reminds me that there are people in the audience right now or listening online that fall into this category. Now, <clears throat> you may not want to use the word mock because it sounds blasphemous. It sounds very disrespectful, and we all want to respect each other's religions or opinions, and so we, we don't necessarily want to use the word mock. But isn't it true that we all say something like this? We talk about Jesus, and people go, and they do something like that, or they'll roll their eyes. Or they'll say something like this, and this is such a modern-day comment. How can people who are so intelligent and sophisticated believe in something like that? Somebody who claims to have fed crowds of 15,000 people with a couple loaves and some fish. Somebody who claims to have stopped the storm, the raging you know, elements of nature with a single spoken word. Come on. In, in 2019, who could believe in such things? Healing the sick, the lame, the deaf, you know, raising people from the grave, walking on water, come on. And so even though that we may not categorize it as mock, you know, if you want to soften that word and your perception, that's fine. But when it comes down to it, there are those people today. And by the way, rightfully so, because uh, not rightfully, let me just say this. If you don't know Jesus, rightfully so. And here's the reason why. Because I'm wired that way. And when I hear about things like this and I'm not a part of them, I think to myself, yeah, there's no way that I could believe in something like that. I've announced this 100,000 times. I'm a skeptic at heart. But you know what? You've also had this experience in your life. You know this to be true. Have you ever thought something about someone, but then when you saw them in person, your, your opinion changed? Right? Like you're like, I don't believe in that guy, or that guy's not a great performer, or that guy isn't who he claims to be. Then you see him and you see him do his magic tricks, or you see him give the politician speech, or you see him, you, you sit down with coffee with this person, whoever it is, a celebrity or a person, and you walk away and you say, My perception after meeting that person is completely different. I was wrong about him, or I was wrong about her. I believe that that you know it's probably a natural reaction to be skeptical or to be cynical or even to kind of mock at the idea that someone can claim all of those things, right? 
And so let's look at uh, the other people in the crowd. Next, there were those who came to see Lazarus. The scripture is pretty clear in verse 17. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. It actually says in another account that they actually came to see Lazarus because they heard that Lazarus was going to be at this event. So they came. And so who are those people? The, the, the crowd that came to see Lazarus are those who hope. Can we bring that up? Okay, they are looking for Lazarus to make up their own minds about Jesus' claim. Because, listen, they're coming because they've heard about this miracle. Can you imagine being there and having heard that, you know, somebody who's as well-known as Lazarus, Jesus, wrote, you know, raised him from the dead. You know, people probably knew that he was dead or dying. Several people, I'm sure, in Bethany had visited the tomb. They maybe even buried him. But word got around, and they said, oh, that guy? Yeah, he's there. And so it says that they went to see Lazarus. And so those who hope means that they're investigating, that maybe they're not convinced yet, but they're saying like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to go and I have to see Lazarus for myself. I have to check this out. I have to validate that which I'm skeptical about because I hope that it could be true. And the reason why I use the word hope is this, is that when you walk in through the doors of this church, okay, when you walk in through the doors of this church, even if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, I bet you that most of us deep down inside hope that it could be true. Because what is better than the thought of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God who died on a cross to pay for all of our shortcomings so that we don't have to pay the penalty ourselves, giving us a home in heaven and giving us and wanting to give us a life of blessing? What is better than that thought? I mean, those of us who would say, I hope that is true, and I may not say it, and I may kind of scoff at it or laugh at it, but deep down inside, I'm really not a mocker, although I seem like I'm a mocker. I'm actually a person who hopes. And if you're here and you're investigating Jesus, maybe you're here for the first of a three-part series that's going to continue on on Good Friday, and I encourage you not to miss that, and then on Easter Sunday or you know Saturday and Sunday. Maybe if you're here for the first time investigating this journey, I would just say continue to hope. In fact, the scripture says, dare to hope. Because the plan of salvation, Jesus' claim of how for us to get to heaven, is the best deal in the history of the universe. How many of you know that uh, I was a salesman before I was a pastor? Anybody know that about me? So not too many. Like maybe 10% of you know this, okay? I held a job selling, uh, what, what, good, good goodness, uh, uh, there's so many. I sold Tecmatic adjustable beds to people. I actually sold Rainsoft water purification systems uh, residentially. I actually sold used vehicles. I sold used cars. How many of you know that I'm a used car salesman, right? I'm a used car salesman. <laughs> or pre-owned, if that's an issue for you. Sorry, all you dealers. Okay? Uh, I actually sold those car washes. When you pull up to a car wash and you want like a $15 wash, and there's some guy there, some joker, who talks you into a hand wax for uh, $169, that was me. Okay? I sold MCI long distance. I sold Discover cards online, uh, uh, telemarketing. I've sold a lot of different things. But do you know that when I became a pastor for the last 27 years, the best deal in the world to push is Jesus? Yeah. <clears throat> right? It's the best deal in the world. It's like, it's like, listen, the only reason why I made a bunch of money and I was a really good salesman is because I believed in the product. And when I worked for a company that I didn't believe in the product, it was really hard to sell because you have to believe, we have to believe what you're saying. Well, Jesus isn't a product, but when it comes to the deal of Jesus, it's like, okay, listen, okay, here's the deal. If you don't accept Jesus, bad things happen, okay? Uh, if you do accept Jesus, eternal life, blessing for your life, and guess what? It's totally free. 
How's that for a deal, right? It's the best deal around. It's like, it's the biggest deal around. The stakes are the highest. So isn't this worth you pushing into, right? If the stakes are that high, isn't it worth us saying, I better investigate. I better, I better hope that it's true, but I better press on. I better show up. I better ask myself, I better make sure this is true before I walk away because there's too much at stake. Jesus made some pretty audacious claims. It's not on the screen, but did you know that Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse number six, he actually said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father except through me. Now, that's, people hear that, and that's probably the scripture that most people point to you know, when, when considering all the other religions of the world, and they say, how narrow-minded is Christianity? That is such a narrow-minded view. Right? Like, how could Jesus ever claim something like that? But let me, let me ask you to consider a few things, okay? When you think about Christianity versus eternal life or the next life or the afterlife or whatever life, whatever karma that you believe in, when you consider all of that, Christianity stands alone, at least in a couple of ways. Here they are. Consider this. Christianity, everyone is invited. Everyone is welcome. Right? Think about that. There's no, you know, there's no jump you know, hoops that you have to jump through. There's no check, you know, check the box or run faster or jump higher. It's not selected. You know, only certain people come, certain people make it. Everyone is welcome. Number two, everyone gets in the exact same way. Right? There's no different levels of service or no different penance or no different you know, responses or anything like that. Everyone gets in the exact same way. And then number three, everyone can meet the requirements. What other religion can say that? Because the Bible says that you don't have to do anything to get to heaven. You just have to believe in what was done for you already at the cross of Calvary. The most famous verse in all the Bible is John 3.16. If you've seen any football game whatsoever, you've seen this reference. When they kick the ball through the upright, somebody's in the background, John 3.16, right? And, and, And the verse reads this way. And again, it's not on the screen. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, And that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so again, I just want to encourage you, if you're here hoping and you're here investigating, press on because too much is at stake not to. And then here's the third part of the crowd. And then there were also worshipers in the crowd. The Bible says that in verse number 20, we would like to see Jesus. Remember the Greeks who went to Philip and Bethsaida and said, we would like to see Jesus. In other words, we want to see Jesus for all the right reasons. We believe fully in who he is. We are called Greek worshipers, the Bible called them, because they are the people who knew who Jesus was. And certainly there's those people in the audience here today or listening online. You are already convinced that Jesus is who he said he was because you have seen and experienced for yourself the power of God in your life and nothing could ever make you doubt it again. I had a brand new thought from last service. And I thought about this. There are probably seasons in all of our lives where maybe we jump around. I thought about that. Somebody's faith journey. Where maybe you start off with, by a believer and you're a worshiper, but then tragedy strikes. And then all of a sudden you just turn away and then you kind of fall into the category of the mocker or the, or the doubter or the atheist. And then maybe at times, you know, you could maybe graduate to the place where when the bottom really falls out, maybe you're just the person who hopes and say, I, 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 I think I believe, I hope it is true, but I'm, but I'm starting to doubt it. And I, I started thinking about that too. It's probably not just cut and dry. We probably morph around in different seasons of our lives. But when it comes down to it, based on my experience, based on my relationship with Jesus Christ, here are my conclusions about those three categories of people. Is that those 
Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot to do this, didn't I? Okay, the worshipers are those who believe. Let me define that. They seek Jesus and want to spend time with him, okay? All right, let me, let me get my conclusions now. My conclusions are this. Those who laugh have never truly met him. Those who hope have never finished investigating. And those who believe will never stop worshiping. And I believe that there are those in here. And so, you know, what, what is God asking you to do? What next step in your faith journey is God asking you to do? And so here's the challenge. The challenge is simply these three, three phrases. Either, here they come, meet him, investigate him, and worship him. And so maybe for some of us, you'll just take one step. Maybe for some of you, you'll want to come meet Jesus for the first time. You'll come back and you'll say, I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, and then some of you will come and you're like, hey, well, you know, I've, I've been exposed to that. I'm just skeptical and you want to come and you want to investigate a little bit more. And then some of you will cross the line to worship. And you know what? Maybe even for some of you, you'll do all three. You'll come and you'll hear about Jesus for the first time. You'll trust in Jesus for the first time. You'll investigate all your questions and then you will walk away saying, I'm convinced that my life is going to be better recognizing just who I am versus who God is in my life. And so I want to just want to encourage you because the journey does continue. The same question they had, could it be him? Could it be him? And they all were wondering. And then what happens is Jesus ends up on Friday going to the cross and they ask the question, could it be over? And that's what we're pressing into on Friday. What is God asking you to do on this Easter holiday? What journey of faith is he asking you to walk down? You know, maybe it's taking the next step in your surrender of worship, those of us who believe in him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful, unbelievable time together where we can come and worship freely. And Father, I just pray that all of us would be challenged to take our next step in our faith journey. Lord, whatever it looks like, whatever that means, God, I pray that we would take one step closer to who you are and what you have done for us and what that means for our lives. God bless us, be with us, and I pray for this great holiday weekend that we may have as many people here as possible to hear, to understand, and to believe in the name, the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. I want you to listen to this song because this song is written, this next song is written from the perspective of Lazarus who was raised from the tomb. And what we see, just like Palm Sunday or just like Passover Sunday, is that physical salvation is no different than the spiritual salvation that God gives us today.